Hey, good morning. You showed up. Uh, ten minutes ago, it was barren here, and I was hoping it would stay that way. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, happy New Year. This is the last time I can say that. All right, today ends the Happy New Year. Um, we were talking about that this weekend. How long can you say Happy New Year to people? And I think the first Sunday of the New Year is a good time to stop. Um, so, welcome. Glad you're at Three Rivers. Uh, glad we can worship together today. And um, I want to tell you where I want to go this morning, and there's no guarantee we'll get there. But this is this is my ambition. Um, with it being the new year, with, with it being the first Sunday of 2013, I, I, I feel incredibly challenged by what Brad just said. And I have been challenged for six weeks now, I think. Um, six weeks ago, God did something in my heart to basically show me my arrogance and my presumption about how the Christian life works or about how much I have it together, um, how good I am or, or how theologically minded and insightful I am. And, um, and, and I, I just stand rocked here, um, just humbled and, and asking, Lord, teach me, blank slate, teach me, show me Jesus, show me what it means to live as a Christian, to walk in the strength of your spirit every day, show me what it means to be effective, to, to hold fast to the word of truth and to stand firm in the gospel and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Show me what that means, Father. And, and a, a couple of weeks ago when Mitch asked me to preach, um, it didn't seem as heavy as it does this morning. I, I didn't feel that weight like I do this morning. And I, I've, I've been broken trying to prepare this sermon. Um, but I thought, what a good opportunity, first Sunday of the new year, for us to come back to center, for, for us to refocus and resettle and reland on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I, I work in software. We develop tax and accounting software and and we have a word when we're preparing to build software or do new enhancements to our software. Um, there's a development word called scope creep. Scope creep. It's, it means we say, hey, I need a check register in this accounting software. Good. Let's build that check register. What does it need to do? Well, you need to be able to put checks into it. Great. Anything else? Well, yeah, you you need to be able to put checks into it, and you need to be able to click when those checks come through on your bank statement so you can reconcile it. Okay? Good. Anything else? Well, yeah, it, it needs to keep a running tally of your bank uh, balance so that you can see that. You know, and it also needs to have search features so that if I'm looking for a specific check, you know, it would be good if the columns sort top to bottom. And all of a sudden, what was this becomes this, right? And, and what took, would have taken you two months to build and deploy, now you're looking at two years and $3 million, you know, to get a check register in your software. Um, I, I think we are guilty often of focus creep as contemporary American Christians. Um, we, we are so enamored with new things and with cultural relevance and with whatever, 
with good music and good lighting or you, you name it. And, and our tendency is to find the newest or most, I guess, uh, exciting or challenging or, or whatever thing, and we want to go after it. We want to, we want to talk about that. We want to think about it. We want to wrestle with it. We want to understand it. Maybe it's just me, but I, I, I feel like that applies to all of us. And, and I think it's good for us to come back regularly and say, what's the main issue? What's the main point? Forget all those other things. What are we trying to do here? What are we living for? Where are we going? What are we doing? And, um, and that's what I want to do today is let's start 2013. What, whatever you are wrestling with, whatever your emotional issues are or your theological issues are or whatever the struggles in your heart may be or whatever failure you had this week, come today and let's go back to the meaning of everything. Let's go back to the center of history, the center of the universe. Let's go back to why you exist as a human being and why I exist and let's understand what Jesus Christ has done and why it matters. So that's where I want to go today, if we can get there. Um, so let me, let me pray, and, and let's jump in. Father, um, would you speak to us by your Spirit? Would you come and, and take a bumbling idiot and, and speak your truth? from your word this morning, and open people's eyes to see Jesus Christ. Father, I, I, I feel inadequate, and, and I, um, Lord, I just want you to shine forth here and for your people to see you and to rejoice. And so make that happen, Father. We are dependent on you for every bit of that. Come and do it. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's let's go. First Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 5 is where I want to kind of launch from. Um, so the goal is to recenter on the gospel. Next week I'll be back preaching, and, and I I hope to feel more confident um, that what we're going to learn today will be the foundation for next week. We're going to see the gospel today, and then next week we will learn what it means day by day to walk with Jesus in that gospel, to hold fast to it, to stand firm in it. We're going to talk about some, some spiritual disciplines that maybe you can recommit yourself to in 2013. Um, so it should be, a, should be a good week. But today is foundation. Today is why we do anything else that we do. And, and I see this in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And he goes on, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James, and he appeared to the apostles. But Paul gives us a, a little summary there, a little snippet of what his life was all about. Um, in fact, he uses a phrase that tips us off to that. He says, I delivered to you, Corinthians, 
as of first importance what I received. In other words, this is the most important thing I have ever told you. If I'm going to communicate one thing to you, Corinthian church, this is it. In fact, you read in Acts, you know, Paul's habit was to go around and preach the gospel. And as people believed, he would kind of, you know, set up shop in a city, live with these guys for, for a while and help establish them in the faith. And then he would move on to the next city, and, and that was the work of an apostle. Go and establish a church, and once they're kind of up and running, get some elders stationed there, and then I'm going to move on somewhere else and be beaten and stoned there and establish a church and, you know, establish elders, and then I'll move on somewhere else and be put in prison. And, you know, that was Paul's life. Um, and so he lived with the Corinthians for 18 months or so, and now... Sometime later, he's writing a letter to them, and he goes on to a lot of problems in the Corinthian church, a lot of things that if they were going on in in one of our churches here, it would be the most shocking, the most controversial thing in all of Floyd County, maybe for the past 20 years. You know, it would be just crazy. People would be talking about that church all over the place because they were really, I mean, people getting drunk at the communion table, you know, guys sleeping with their mother-in-law, or mother-in-law, they're, they're, I don't know, stepmother, I guess is a good way to say it. Just things like that, that they're just scandalous. And Paul's writing to help recenter this Corinthian church and say, you guys are missing it. You, you're making a lot of mistakes here. Um, and so we get to chapter 15, and he says, here, here's my point, guys. I'm writing to remind you of something that is critically important. Um, and I want to linger on that first sentence that he says for just a minute because I think it's easy to blow through it and get to that meat, get to, you know, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and he was buried and he was raised. We, we want to jump into that. But Paul says something very profound in verses uh, 1 and 2 that I don't want to miss. He says, first he says, I'm writing to remind you of the gospel. If you remember Second Peter, when we went through Second Peter last June, um, there was a similar phrase. And, and I said, part of being a Christian is just remembering what you already know. It's just not forgetting. Every day you wake up and your mind goes a million different directions and you are marketed to by television or by your own sin or by your job or by the needs of your children or whatever. Every day you are being given a pitch, a sales pitch. This is what matters. This is what matters. Go after this. Take care of this. This is the most important thing in your life. If you have this, you will be happy. Or if you do this, everything will be better. Every day you're given that sales pitch. And and I said in, in Second Peter we saw that and we see it here. That the most important thing that you do in that moment every day is you remember what is actually most important. You remember what you know But in that moment, it's easy to forget. It's easy to be deceived. Remember what is most important. And so Paul says, I'm writing to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. Um, And he says, says, remember what you already know. And then he kind of takes us through a process, um, uh, through a, a series of how this kind of worked. He says, remember this gospel that I preached to you, that you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And so let's, let's look at those for a second. He says, I'm, I'm reminding you of the gospel I preached to you. So that's first. 
Paul preached. He, he came and lived with these guys for 18 months, and he gave his life to tell them this message. I preached this to you, which you received. Now, I, I see this as kind of, right now at Three Rivers, there are all of you people here. And as we go through this series, some of you are going to drop off. Okay, so imagine this is us. Paul says, the gospel that I preach to you, that's you this morning. I hope in just a minute to go to preach the gospel, to proclaim the central message of the Bible to you. And that, that will be you. You have had the gospel preached to you. And then Paul says, Corinthians, you received this. And that's where some of you get off the train this morning. Some of you are not there yet. You may have been preached to for years. You may have heard this message over and over, but you have not received it. You have never once said, this is, this is it. This is the truth. This is the ultimate reality behind all that is. This is the most important thing that I could ever trust in and hope in. This is my joy and my satisfaction. You've never said that. You've never received that gospel. You've had it preached to you, but you haven't been there yet. And so I just want to challenge you this morning to think about that. You may have acknowledged that there are some good things, some good ideas here in Christianity or, or in things you've heard at Three Rivers or in things you've read in the Bible, but maybe you have never seen it as essential or life-giving or your only hope. And so that's your first challenge this morning as we go through this gospel. Don't just let it be preached to you. Receive it. Embrace this as your hope. Embrace it anew today, even if you believed it yesterday, because your tendency every day, your temptation is to forget it. So em embrace it, appropriate it today, receive it today. Um, so I, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand. Some of you have made it through the first two. You've heard the gospel. You received it. You said, that is good. I believe that. Jesus, save me. Take my sin. Make me holy. And yet, you still think of it mainly as a one-time transaction. That happened on this date. And now, my job is just to wait. Now, I, I have all these other things to attend to. Thank you, God. Check. Got that done. You've saved me. I've received the gospel. And now I've, I've got all of my life that I've got to manage and I've got to take care of. And I know Jesus is supposed to be in there somewhere because I know he saved me. And so that's, that's my job is to kind of just figure all that out. But, but the gospel is something that was over here. It was the first thing. And now we've moved on to everything else. And Paul says, no, no. I'm reminding you of the gospel that I preached to you that you received and that you stand in. We're going to talk about that at, at the end here. What does it mean to stand in the gospel? And that's all next week. How do we stand in that gospel? How do we remember every day this gospel? How do you stand in it? And then he says, and I think this is kind of, is, is underneath and over everything that he just said. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. So this gospel that Paul preached, you received, you stand in it, and by which you are being saved. And then a phrase that makes us very uncomfortable as good believers in the perseverance of the saints. 
in which or by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. And I would say, don't let your nice, neat, systematic theology just overwrite that. Don't don't do that. Don't dismiss that out of hand and say, no, no, once saved, always saved. God saved me, and therefore I'm always saved. That is true. I'm not arguing against that. But there's a reason Paul says things like this. There's a reason he says you are being saved if you hold fast to this word. If you don't abandon this word, if you don't forget this or live like it's not true every day, if you hold fast to it, you are being saved. There's a tension there. There's a tension there. But but don't say A is true, therefore this phrase can't be true. I know once you're saved, you're always saved. God, God will not go back on the payment of his son. Therefore, this phrase doesn't matter. No, there's a reason it's there. And it is a challenge to you. Have you checked off on your list? Yes, said my prayer, got saved. Now I can do whatever I want to do. That's now I know Jesus has got my back. No matter what I do, where I go. Now my job is just to be ha- as happy as I can. And I, one day I get heaven. Guess what? Get streets of gold. Get my own mansion. It's going to be legit. That's, that's not how a Christian talks. Get that. that. You are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach. If you hold fast to this gospel. So, and I, I didn't really emphasize this yet. You are being saved. This is not a matter of, of your overall intellectual satisfaction in life. This is not a matter of you kind of having all your ducks in a row. Yes, I've got a good job, got a good house, got a beautiful wife, got a nice kid, and got eternity taken care of. Right? This, this, that's not what this is about. It, it is, this is life and death. This is beginning to end everything that matters to you in all of, all of eternity hinges here. In this gospel, you are being saved. It's, in other words, if you don't have this, none of that other stuff matters in the least. So get that. This is life and death. That's, that's one sentence of Paul. Gosh, I, I love the idea that you could, you could go through all of Paul's letters. And it's like every sentence is that. You know, I hope you read the Bible like that. I hope you, you stop. Just pause every now and then. Don't just try to burn through Ephesians, you know. Stop and say, what does that phrase mean? That is not a throwaway phrase. And Paul has just set a very high bar for what we're about to see. He said, this is it. This is life and death gospel. And so, so what is it? What is this all-important gospel that Paul preached? And he goes right on to, to tell us. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So there are a few critical elements that I see here in this gospel, and I'll just give you kind of some bullet points. Just break down that sentence. Christ died. He died for our sins, and this was in, in accordance with the scriptures. 
He was buried. He was raised on the third day. And this was according to the scriptures. And there are witnesses to all of that. That he appeared. He, he appeared to Cephas. He appeared to 500 people. Most of whom are still alive as of Paul's writing here. So those are some critical elements. But, but this is what's been bothering me. This is why this sermon has been so hard to get together, I think. And it's because there are massive presuppositions in what Paul just said. Massive presuppositions. He is assuming a body of knowledge that he delivered to the Corinthians in that 18 months that he was living there. That if, if you just go here, you're going to miss. Or you won't understand fully the implications of what he's saying. Um, that's one of the difficult things about reading these, these letters, reading the New Testament, is that we're just getting snapshots. We're getting a letter at a, at a specific point in time from Paul, and there's all this context that he doesn't give us right there in that passage. He doesn't start beginning to end of all creation through to the end of all time. He doesn't give us that. He says, here are the highlights. Here, here are the key points to remember. And, and if you're the Corinthian church, it's supposed to trigger all the other things that you, you talked about when Paul lived with you. And so my immediate thought is, we don't have that here. Okay, what's all that other information? And this is beautiful. Paul tells you, he says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. You want the background, you want the context, you want the body of knowledge that he is building off of? There it is, in accordance with the Scriptures. In Paul's day, what were the Scriptures? Old Testament, right? Genesis to Malachi. Not necessarily in that order if you were a good Jew, but... Genesis to Malachi, Old Testament. Those were the scriptures. And Paul says Christ died for our sins according to the Old Testament, according to those scriptures. Um, that's, a, that's a big statement. And so what I want to do is just try to go back and, and let's just look at a snapshot of Old Testament, a snapshot of history, a snapshot of all that context that's undergirding this little phrase that Paul just gave us. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he died and uh, was buried and he was raised on the third day. And I'm trying to find it on my notes, but <laughs> so forgive me for not quoting that exactly. Um, so there's, there's meaning there. There's context there that makes that glorious. And if you miss all that context, Christ will be less glorious than he should be in your mind. So let's let's go back. Let's go all the way back. Genesis 1. It is no coincidence in my mind that the Bible begins, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the opening words of Scripture, there is a huge truth claim about ultimate reality. Namely, that if you go back, if you go back to the beginning, millions and billions and billions of years ago, God, not a gas, not a void, not an impersonal mass, but a proper name. Before anything else existed, there is a person 
And that person created everything that exists. That is a huge fundamental statement about the nature of ultimate reality. Get that. Um, Carl and I had a great discussion yesterday. I, 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 I don't have time to go there, but I wanted to get into this. I'll just say this statement and leave it with you and take it and, and read. Um, that is the Bible's fundamental truth claim about ultimate reality. And regardless of whatever else you may hear in a classroom with an arrogant professor, science and physics, biology, chemistry, whatever it is, has not given us an explanation of that origin of everything. They, they do a very good job in many ways of helping us understand natural processes as they happen. But then they extrapolate theories of how it started. And, and there are... There are gaps there that it requires faith to believe just as it requires faith to believe this. Okay? Just just get that. Um, I, I, I'm not going to go farther than that. I'm just I, – I love science. I'm not saying science is invalid or bad, and I, I think we should be checked as Christians for our often – arrogance in return just dismissing anything scientific because we say well look they made a fundamental truth claim about the universe that's wrong therefore everything they see is also wrong not true there there's much we can learn about how god has structured the world but here is a fundamental truth claim about the origins of everything that you know everything that we see how it all started and i'm just gonna say there's not a good explanation in evolutionary theory in in M theory, whatever your your scientific penchant is, penchant is, or, or your particular theory of choice, there's no good explanation of origins there. But the Bible says it's because it's this. It's because it's this. Don't come at, at at the universe with the presupposition that we have to be able to explain all of it, including the beginning, without the necessity of God. Don't don't come at the universe that way because the Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and that's the baseline. Now that immediately begs two questions, right? Um, the first is, do we just have to take that on blind faith, which is the accusation often of Christians that we just we read that and we say no matter what else I see or hear, that's got to be true. I'm just going to take the Bible's word for it. That's not a terrible answer. We should approach the Bible that way in, in, in many um, situations because we are finite. We don't understand all of it. But it may be less than satisfying for those of you on the fence about the Bible. So, so the question is, if we are to trust the Bible, if this is where the Bible starts, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is it, is it just, are we just supposed to trust it on blind faith from the get-go and then everything else the Bible says there it is? Or, or does the Bible say, no, you can check this out for yourself and see the evidence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and here's some corroborating evidence. Does the Bible give us anything like that? Say, hey, here's some evidence that you can go and look at and see if that resonates with you. And I would say, yes, there is. The Bible tells us in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. 
There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. So the Bible says, if, if you're the author of Genesis, or, or let's assume, let's give some personality to Genesis. Genesis comes to you and says, hey, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And you say, I'm supposed to take your word on that? And the psalmist says, no, look around. <laughs> look, it's, it's clear. You don't have to take my word. Look at the universe. Look at the heavens and the earth. They are declaring the glory of God. It even says day-to-day pours out speech. Have you ever thought about that phrase? Day-to-day pours out speech. What that means is yesterday and today and tomorrow and every day of history is speaking. It's pouring out speech and it's telling you something. It's saying, look, see, understand. All of this comes from somewhere. There is, there is someone behind all of this. Don't miss it. Night to night reveals knowledge, Psalm 19 says. The stars are saying, you want to know God? Here's a good place to start. Look at this and feel inadequate. Look at this and feel small and see glory. That's, that's a, what um, the Puritans called the, the natural book or God's second book. Right? God gave us the Bible. That's his word, his, his written revelation there. And then God gave us nature, the other book, to see him and to understand him. And so the Bible says, look there. And the psalmist says, you can't miss it. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. If you exist on planet Earth, you are continually surrounded by proclamation. God is, and he is glorious. That's what nature exists to tell you. And and I hope, like I have learned to do or am learning to do, I hope that you go, then go to science and you see the, the inner workings of a cell and you think, wow, God, that is incredible. That from, from the glories and majesty of the universe down to the mitochondria in a cell, God is saying, Hey, I am bigger than you. I am amazing. You should see me and you should wonder at who I am. Um, Romans 1, 18 through 23 says, For what can be known about God? Not 18 through 23, 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to mankind because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The point of all this is God has revealed himself. All of creation is intended to point to him and say all of this came from somewhere. It came from someone. There is something incredible behind all of this. And then you come to Genesis 1, and Genesis says, it's God. God created all of this that you would see him and be amazed. That's it. So, so I hope you understand that. Um, that's the first question that, that, that begs. God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there's a God. How do we know? Look around. Be amazed. See him. And secondly, what is he like? What, what can we tell about what God is like. Psalm 50 verse 6 says, The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. There's, there's a lot there. We, we won't 
spend time on. But, but we see that, we see throughout the Bible little snippets of what God is like. So Genesis starts there, here's God, he created everything, and then you say, what is he like? And, and through the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, God gives us these little snippets of, here's what I'm like. You want to know me? You want to see me? First get that when you look at mountains, you are insignificant, <laughs> And that's supposed to show you that I am huge and I am amazing and I make things that make you feel small. That's the first thing. And then it says the heavens declare his righteousness. And then in Exodus, God tells Moses, let me give you some really clear personal traits from me. God says, my name is the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge, we just read. Who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God is not a one-dimensional person. We are so guilty culturally. Hopefully, I hope we as Christians are not so shallow that we turn God into a one-dimensional character. That, that we say, God is love, and love means whatever I need it to mean in this moment. Right? God is love, which means even though everybody else tells me this is a bad idea, God's got my back in it. Because he's love. That, that is a shame. That is dishonoring to God. God says, I am love. I am merciful. I am gracious. I am slow to anger. But I'm not soft. And, and I, am, I am not naive. And I am not weak. In fact, there is a, a non-negotiable with God. He is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But there is a line where God says, this is mine. No one will cross this line. And we see that in Isaiah 42, 8. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. I will not share my glory. That's God. And, and that is, I wrote here, that is the baseline for everything else. There's your measuring stick for everything you know about the universe. God says, I made all of this. I show you how, how big and amazing I am in it. I, I proclaim to you that I am loving and merciful, but that I'm also just, I'm also righteous. And there is a line, human being, that you will not cross, and that is, no one takes my glory from me. I made all of this to show my glory, and I will not give that up to anyone. That's, that's for me to display, because it's who I am. That's the baseline. I say that's the baseline for everything. Um, there's there's a, a lot of implications of that statement. But one of them is, when you read the Bible like I do a lot, and your heart says, oh, that doesn't sit well with me. God, how can you say that or do that? God, how can you tell the Israelites to take those people out? How can you do that? And God says, that would make sense if you started at the right place 
understanding that this is all mine and I have no obligation to anyone and I will do whatever I need to do to show my glory and make sure it is not defiled and it is not hidden and it is not taken away. And, and if that doesn't sit well with you, all I can say is, um, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say other than pray, other than check yourself, check your heart. Because you are dependent on God for everything. You, you, we are so frail as humans. You have no ability to tell yourself, take the next breath if, if your time is to die. If your lungs collapse, guess what? You have no will to fix them. You can't just say, I'm just going to keep living. Deal with it. You can't do that. Don't be arrogant. Don't be presumptuous in that. Understand everything you have is given to you by God. It is his gracious pleasure to allow you to live right now. And though we may not understand everything, God help us if we put him in the dock and tell him you will give us an answer for why you did this. You don't treat God like that. You don't do it. And so I just challenge you, don't do that. Um, Instead, look at the mountains, look at the stars, look at the Grand Canyon and realize your insignificance. So, I hope we've gotten heavy enough, right? Um, that's, that's imposing, and it should be. If you have read the Psalms where God says, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, it's not intended to make you feel warm and fuzzy. You know? It's not intended to make you feel like, man, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So let's go play baseball. That's not, that's, God is not that. God says, no, I melt the mountains like wax by my very presence, right? And that should make you say, where do I fit? <laughs> don't, don't melt me like wax, you know? It should be imposing because he's big and he's glorious and he's holy. Um, Isaiah sees God in the temple and, and the, uh, the, the seraphim say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah says, woe is me. For I am a man undone at seeing the Lord. Literally, the Hebrew is, I come apart at the seams looking at God. I hope you get that big picture of God. Um, a lot of things that could be said there, but we'll, let's move on. So, God is. That's where it starts. That's, that's the first major presupposition. When Paul says, I delivered to you of first importance, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, You've got to ask yourself, what does he mean by sins? Christ died for our sins. And we're going to see that in a second. But all of that is measured against this God that we just saw. Based on what you just heard of God, now we can start defining sin. And we can start understanding what Christ has done. If you miss that, what's sin? What, what is sin? How do you define that word if, if you don't understand what it's measured against, right? So... God created the world. God is big and glorious and holy. He is. And then he created the earth as a display of his glory. And then here's where you come into play. God created man to reflect and rejoice in that glory. Isaiah 43, 6 through 7 says, I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring me my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, 
whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. It's God talking. He says, I made human beings for something. I made you for my glory. You and I were made for the glory of God. And that is the most fundamental aspect of who we are. We exist to see and reflect and rejoice in that God that we just saw. At a fundamental level, your role in the universe is to look at that God and say, glory. Say, be exalted. God, do what you're going to do and let us rejoice in it. That's why you're made. C.S. Lewis got this just right in Mere Christianity. He said, God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel of our spirit, or the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion, without bothering about him and all that that we just saw. It's no good looking for happiness elsewhere. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Recap. God, big, holy, glorious, existed before everything, says, I'm going to make the world, I'm going to create everything that is, and I'm going to create these humans in my image, and guess what their role is going to be? To see me, to see my glory, to behold it, to reflect it, and to rejoice in it. To, to live on everything I give them and to rejoice in that. They are a display of my glory. And that's why we read so often in the Psalms things like, Praise the Lord. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That's not intended to be an oppressive thing. Like, hey everybody, stop what you're doing. Stop Stop what you doing what you want to do and come over and give praise to God. That's not what that's supposed to be read like. It's not, hey guys, I know we're all enjoying checkers over here, but we've got to stop and come and give glory to God. No, the whole point is, let the peoples praise you, O oh God, because that's what they're supposed to do. That's what they're intended to do. Come do what you were meant to do. Give glory to God. But that's, not often, that's often not how we read it, right? We feel that burden that is so often, I, I have to do this. I have to give glory to God. I have to honor him instead of this is my life. This is the fiber of my being to give glory to God. And so that immediately brings up the question, why? If, if God is the way he is and he created us to see that and rejoice in it, why are we the way we are? Why are we reluctant so often to do that? Why does it feel burdensome to to give glory to God? And the answer is, you hope you know this answer. Man rejected that created order. And we became self-obsessed. We, we seek satisfaction in anything that does not require acknowledging our dependence on God. And therefore we are under judgment. I didn't read all of Romans 1, 18 through 23 a minute ago. So let me, let me give you the context. Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth? That truth. 
the created order, the way the world should work, that we should honor God because he is so glorious and holy. Men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What is our fundamental problem? It's a problem of glory. It is that we were made to see God's glory and rejoice in it, and we traded the glory of God. We exchanged that for the glory of created things, for images resembling us, right? I, in other words, I'm supposed to look at God and say yes and amen, and instead I say, Michael Smith, good-looking guy. You know, I, I look at myself, and I think highly of myself, and I want myself to be exalted. And, and this is why at, at 11 o'clock on Saturday night, Michael Smith is sitting at his dining room table and, and repenting and saying, Lord, it doesn't really matter if anybody thinks that I'm intelligent tomorrow. Because I'm at a core level so consumed with everyone thinking that Michael Smith has it together. I want you to think so highly of me. And God says, that's your problem. You are so consumed with yourself and getting what, what you think will give you satisfaction. If everybody else sees how good you are, or at least thinks you are so good, that's what will make you happy. And that's just one thing. Um, Jeremiah 2.13 describes this same concept in, in different language. Uh, Jeremiah, God says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that, cisterns that can hold no water. That, that verse right there is everything that I've been trying to say up here. Our biggest problem is that God said, I am the fountain of living water. I gave you everything. I show you myself. Your job is simply to partake of that water and rejoice. And instead, you thumbed your nose at me. You said, I don't want that water. And you came over here and started digging in the dirt looking for any other water. But there's not any. God says, and, and that's not just us being misdirected. That's not just a mistake. God calls that evil. My people have committed two evils against me. So here's, here's where it lands on us. Your biggest problem for 2013, your biggest problem is not that you need to shed a few pounds. It's not that you've got to get a new job in 2013 because your current job is just sapping you of energy and you don't feel any kind of satisfaction in it. That's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is not that your, your spouse doesn't respect you. That's not your biggest problem. Maybe a problem that, that you need to work on in 2013. But if you don't start with your biggest problem, none of those other things matter. Your biggest problem is that you 
are broken. And in that brokenness, you are wired to think that I can be satisfied if I get the right job. Or if my wife would just be a little more respectful to me, I would be as happy as I've ever been. Or if I just had this much money in my IRA, or if I could just finally run that half marathon, that'd be it. I'd be so satisfied. Whatever it is, your biggest problem is that you think that's where you're going to find your ultimate satisfaction. Or not even ultimate satisfaction. Maybe you just think that's the next piece of satisfaction. But then after that, I know I'm going to have to find something else. So I'll need a bigger race to run or I'll need a a bigger mountain to climb or something else to find a little more satisfaction. And God says, no, the whole time that you're looking for all of that anywhere else, I'm standing here holding it out and saying, stop digging in the dirt for water when there is none. I have a fountain of living water here for you. And that, all of that, is what brings us to 1 Corinthians 15. There is your context. There's your backdrop. When, when Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. We, we are broken people who every day are are tempted to say, man, bump this. I'm just going to go after what I've always wanted, and that's what's going to make me happy. I I feel that temptation all the time. I'm I'm sure I'm not the only one. We are broken people who, who look for ultimate satisfaction everywhere but God. And God says, that's not just a mistake. That is you thumbing your nose at me. And God says, remember Isaiah 42, 8. I will not give my glory to another. If you insist on trying to find glory elsewhere and despising my glory and going elsewhere for it, I will move on. I will do away with you and I will move on to someone else. But God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so he doesn't. He doesn't just say, you know what? Michael Smith, forget you. I'll find somebody else. You go to hell. He doesn't say that. I delivered to you as a first importance that Christ died for that. Christ died because Michael Smith thumbed his nose at God and said, I don't want your satisfaction. I'll get it somewhere else. And God said, no, I'm not stopping. I'm not stopping. I am sending my son to die You will get this, Michael Smith. You will see my glory and you will love it. You will rejoice in it. Christ died for our sins in accordance with all of that. Um, God in his mercy sent Christ to take the judgment that we deserved for thumbing our nose at God, for, for rejecting him. And by faith we receive Christ's righteous record as our own. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of the most important verses in the Bible. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That that is a huge, important, foundational truth. God sent Jesus when we deserved punishment 
for rejecting him. God sent Jesus and made him who was innocent in every way, who had done nothing but but rejoice in all that God was and reflect that and perfectly represent it. God said, you will become sin for these people. We, we looked at Jesus and said, I hate you. And God said, that's the guy you're going to die for right there. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we could have everything that Jesus deserved. And finally, we are called now. I not say finally. Not move on too quickly from that. If if you have not gotten that, get that today. Get that for 2013 and beyond. I, I was just thinking this week, watching some of the Passion 2013 live cast, um, simulcast, whatever you call it. Uh, Live stream is the word I was looking for. Um, I'm watching that, and I'm thinking, 12 years ago, on January 1st, God made this real to Michael Smith. He, he made that real to me. I, I became a new person. And I just, just watching that, I, I had moments of just rejoicing, thinking about for 19 years, 18 and a half years of my life, Growing up in a pastor's home, hearing this kind of stuff every Sunday, I didn't get it. I missed it. I thought, all well and good, but really, this next girlfriend is the one that's going to make me happy, ultimately. Or this next adventure, or if I could just do this, or if I just get out of college and get a job and make some money, that's really what's going to make me happy. Sure, I'll be moral. Sure, I'll go to church. That's what a good Southern Baptist boy does, but... But I just need Jesus kind of sprinkled on everything else that's making me happy. And and I remember sitting in Atlanta and hearing John Piper talk about the glory of God and, and our rejection of it and Christ coming and becoming sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I just remember the walls of my life caving in, just weeping in the aisle of the Atlanta Civic Center and thinking, how have I missed this my entire life? And so I just want to challenge you, have you missed it? I want you to think about that. Don't gloss over that and check it off intellectually and then go on about your life, back to everything else that you think will make you happy. In 2013, let this be... January 1st, 2001 for you, right? Where, where God crashed into my life and said, I will have you. You will see my glory and you will love it. If you're not there yet, go and, and pray and ask God to do that. Um, and then if you, if you are there, if you have been there, if you get that, and it's more than just an intellectual check in your mind, the question is, what do you do? What's, what's next? So God is glorious, holy. We have rejected him. Wrath is coming on us. We are seeking satisfaction everywhere else when we're designed to be pursuing him. And God says, I'm not going to give up on you. He sends Jesus to redeem us. What's next? Do we then just move on to the rest of life? Is that a momentary transaction, a one-time exchange? Paul says, I remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received 
in which you stand. So your job is to stand in that. Um, We are called to live in that gospel, to live that righteousness, to live to live that truth out so that God is honored and that others may see our lives and give glory to the Father. In other words, your job tomorrow morning and every morning is to live as if everything that you just heard is actually true and not just a neat idea. Your job every morning is to wake up and realize, apart from Christ, I'm done. I am toast, but God is merciful. And if you start with that orientation... It, it fixes so many other things. That will fix a marriage. If I realize by default I am stubborn and arrogant and everything is about me. But God says, no, don't live that way, Michael Smith. You, you are nothing. You should be humble and accept what Jesus has done for you. That will make me more sensitive to my wife. That will make me realize, you know, in that moment when I feel like I should just demand what's coming to me. I realize I don't deserve anything, right? Those, that, let that apply to everything in your life. So that's your starting point. Live that righteousness out. Appropriate that gospel every day. Stand in it, as Paul said, in which you stand. And, and your job is to live a life that reflects that. Um, Romans 12:1 says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. What we just talked about, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual act of worship. Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So you, we missed glory. We missed it. God is gracious and has pursued us with it. And now he says, now that you get it, now that you've received Jesus, don't just move on to the rest of your life. Push that glory back. Reflect that glory. Come back to what you were designed to do. Let the peoples praise you, O oh God. Let all the peoples praise you. Every moment of your life is designed for that. And that's where ultimate satisfaction comes from. Um, I hope you get that. that that's a... A lot, there, there are a lot of potential rabbit trails there. Speaking of scope creep, I wrestled all this week with scope creep on this sermon. Uh, I sent Brad an email yesterday and I said, we're either going to do like, you know, just straight gospel or an overview of the Bible or systematic theology or something. I, I don't know what we're going to do tomorrow. Um, but I, I hope you get that theme. I hope you get that storyline in this. Because that's that's everything. If that's not glorious to you, it could be my my presentation. Okay, it could be my just rambling. But if there's not something in there that your heart says yes and amen to, you need to repent. You need to sit down and really think about why are you even here this morning? What it what makes you think that that you are a Christian? Just to be blunt. That that is designed, that story should rivet you. Your heart should leap and say, Amen, I am I am broken and Christ is relentless in pursuing me. I hope I hope you have those moments. Be satisfied in the glory of God. Um let me pray and and let's sing some really poetic
and clear explanations of the gospel. I hope your heart jumps with these songs that we sing. And, um, and then next week, let's talk about maybe a little more practical. Okay, if that's true, what does that mean for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? How do I live in that? How do I stand in that? Um, so let me pray for us. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. We use that phrase, that word, so much. And I hope it's not just a utilitarian descriptor. I hope we're not, it doesn't become, we don't become numb to it. I'm gospel-centered, I'm gospel-driven, I'm, you know, we're we're gospel-based or gospel-founded or whatever. I, I hope that's not the way we use that phrase. I hope when we hear gospel, we hear the glory of God and our brokenness and Jesus Christ's merciful sacrifice for us. I hope we don't miss that, Father. Um, would you come and, and take the truth here and apply it to our hearts? May we understand Jesus in a way that we never have, and may we see his glory, and may we rejoice. Um, Father, just thank you for your, your graciousness to us. When we fail, when we are weak, you are strong. You do not reject us. You do not cast us away, but you send your son, and you give us grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.